I recently got new glasses and turns out your eyes do change in 12 years. So now I have new lenses. And thanks to Warby Parker for the first time, I have frames that actually fit my face. Warby Parker gives you exceptional vision care online and in stores, offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Glasses start at just $95, including prescription lenses. That's a fantastic deal. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash myths. Quick disclaimer this week. Uh, we're in Greek mythology, so just kind of the general Greek disclaimer of mentions of sexual assault, suicide, other adult themes. Like I said, it's Greek and Roman mythology. If you'd like more information, please check out the post at mythpodcast.com. This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories from Greek and Roman mythology where we'll see that if you love someone, let them go. If they return to you, it's meant to be. If you end up chasing them through the woods screaming, you're doing something seriously wrong, you don't understand love. The creature this week is a fun little freelancer you can hire to throw rocks at your enemies, but they might just end up burning your house down. This is Myths and Legends, episode 227. A funny thing happened on the way to Olympus. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This is just a one-off Greek and Roman episode with two love stories you don't need to have heard any of the previous Greek episodes to jump in here. We'll start today with Apollo, the Greek god of archery, prophecy, music, healing, diseases, and more, as he's definitely not being weird, stalking a young woman in the forest. There, he'll meet another guy who's actually there for the same reason. What are you doing? The Olympian demanded of the young human. Lysippus looked up and then back down at the river where all the young women were bathing. He said he was braiding his hair. But why are you dressed like a young woman? Apollo again demanded. The kid shrugged. It wasn't usually his thing, but for Daphne, he would wear anything. The young women down the hill were getting out of the water at this point. And Lysippus smiled and waved. Hey, girls, it's me, a fellow woman, Lysippus. Oh, looks like I just missed bath time. I'll be up here braiding my hair because that's what all us girls do around this time and I'm one of you, a girl. Still not looking back at Apollo, Lysippus explained that when it came to Daphne, a river nymph down there, he was in love. But she had sworn off ever getting married. Even the company of men so he had this plan. He would grow out his hair, dress like a young woman, meet up with them in the forest, join their little troop, and over time, he would become closer and closer to Daphne. Then, when she realized that she did want to get married, and that she had confusing feelings for her best friend, he would solve both of those problems and marry her. Apollo was silent. Lysippus turned around and saw a sad, wistful look in his eye. Oh, oh, no way. This was too good. Apollo was in love with Daphne. 
Apollo wiped a budding tear from his eye. No, 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 no. That was stupid. Lucippus was stupid. Don't say ridiculous things. Hey, bud, I don't blame you, Lucippus replied. He understood. He also needed to tell Apollo, Olympian god and slayer of the python, to, you know, stay in your lane, bro. Excuse you, Apollo said, the audacity of that rousing him from thought. Lucippus nodded. Yeah, uh, dibs? Step off? Get in line? Daphne was his. Yeah, she had sworn off romantic relationships with men, sure, but he had been working his entire adult life for this. So, like, two years. It was a long time. He wouldn't have Apollo messing it up. Apollo pulled out his bow, but Lucippus only laughed. Oh, that's funny. What was Apollo going to do with that? Apollo was the famous archer. What would Daphne think when her best friend was murdered by the bow of a god? Lucippus's braids were finished, and he rose to go sit next to Daphne. He slapped Apollo on the back. Best of luck, bud. Oh, actually, do you know her? Fortuna, the goddess of fortune? Huh, maybe she'll date you. Apollo muttered that he would have his revenge on this little human upstart, and that he would be with Daphne. Lucippus laughed as he started on down the hill. <laughs> yeah, in your dreams, bud. Apollo glared at Lucippus as he left, and then thought about that comment. So, I had a dream last night, Daphne said to the group the next morning over breakfast. And I think, I think it was from a god. The rest of the women oohed and awed. Wow, she said yeah, it was one of the higher ups. And they promised a revelation if we do one simple task for them. Just jump in the river and wash our clothes. The women shrugged. Huh, okay, easy enough. Kind of too easy, but just that for a revelation from a god? Sure, why not? Let's get going. The woman rose to leave, but Daphne looked back. You coming, Lucippus? Lucippus smiled. Yeah, that he, in the disguise of a she, said that they would be right along. The girl should just go on ahead. Lucippus would meet them there. But Daphne said that the god in her dreams told her that all the girls had to enter the river together, or there would be no revelation. Then, more of the women paused. Hey, wait a second. Lucippus never came with them to bathe or wash their clothes. She was always mysteriously absent, arriving just when it was time for all of them to rise from the water. Lucippus shook their head. Uh, what? No, that can't be the case. That's not every time. Lucippus had been with them before, like most times. They were, they were misremembering. The women began to circle around him. No, Lucippus had never been there. There was a growing suspicion among the group, and like a flame catches dry grass, one woman snatched out at Lucippus's dress. Lucippus dodged and pointed at her. No, don't, not cool, personal space. Oh, now Lucippus was all about personal space. What about all those massage circles and spooning Lucippus was always proposing? Lysippus barked back that they lived in the woods and it was cold and stressful. That was for survival. But the women weren't buying it. The first tore the shoulder of Lysippus' dress. When Lysippus backed away from her, the others caught him 
ripping at his clothes. He managed to wrench back enough to hide his nudity, but when enough of Leucippus was revealed, so was the truth. He was a man hiding out among them. He turned to Daphne, who recoiled from his outstretched arm. He said he couldn't be the only one who felt it, right? She loved him too. What was she doing out here? He was a prince. She told him to leave. He got angry, asking her how she could do this to him. Did she know who he was? He deserved her. He grabbed her wrist, but she wouldn't move. She asked if he knew about the Menads, the roving band of women who followed the god Dionysus. Did he know what they did to men? Lucibus looked at the women surrounding him as they all took a step forward. He sneered at Daphne, and his courage left him. He let go of her arm and bolted, pushing aside the women who were closing in on him. The woman looked at Daphne, who shook her head, let him go. As Lucibus ran, he shouted that he would be back. He would return with his father's army and do what he should have done the first time, taking Daphne for himself. Then he stopped, lurched, and fell. The point of the javelin stuck in the ground first. Lucippus's body just slid down, coming to rest, face down in the dirt. Back at camp, Daphne was already in the process of picking up another javelin, just in case the first didn't do its job. But she could see that it was unnecessary. Lucippus was dead. From the forest, invisible, Apollo watched. Wow. Just wow. Beautiful, intelligent, and a great shot. She was the complete package. Someday, when the time was right, he would make his move. And it would be so calculated, so thought out, that she would find him completely irresistible. We'll see Apollo actually meet Daphne with a little help from his friend Cupid, but that will be right after this. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Don't do that, Cupid said, looking to Apollo. Don't do what? Apollo replied smirking. Smirk and stare and stuff, Cupid said. He was trying to work. Oh, is that what you call it? Apollo said. Firing your little bow, giving people all these feelings. Yeah, come say hi when you want to talk to a real archer. Just saved, like, a whole city. Did you know that? That I killed Python? Cupid relaxed his arrow. Yes, he knew. Because Apollo never shut up about it. Arrows by the acre, literally thousands. The thing's still there, just dripping poison down the mountainside. No one even knows how to move it. How would you move a snake that's measured in acres? Oh, that's right, you wouldn't. Because you're a baby. Cupid took aim, 
trying to ignore Apollo, but the Olympian just kept at it. Oh, now he's too good to talk to me, Apollo said to no one in particular. Cupid, 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 Cupid. What? Cupid yelled, letting a love arrow veer off. Now that dog was in love with a tree. Fantastic. What did Apollo need? It's weird that you talk, Apollo told him. You're a baby, and you have the voice of a grown man. Pick a lane. And yet you still wear diapers? Like, you make people fall in love. You know how to use the bathroom. Are we done? Cupid asked, putting his arrows away. He couldn't get any work done anyway. <laughs> yeah, you're done, Apollo said. Put away that bow, and you know what? Don't take it out again. I'm the archer of the Olympians. I kill snakes. I kill Greeks at the request of a whiny demigod sometime in the future. Archery? It's my thing. Cupid rolled his eyes, and his tiny wings started flapping. All right, good talk, bro, Apollo said. You go change your diaper and take your little nappy nap, Cupid sneered. He was going to do both of those things, but the diaper was a personal choice, and who didn't want to take a nap in the middle of the day? Apollo laughed. He told Cupid not to let him see the little guy with the bow in his hand again. Apollo said he could shoot arrows by the thousands. Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book 1, Line 451, brah. Cupid clenched his jaw as he flew. That guy... He kills one giant snake and suddenly he's allowed to boss everyone around. Apollo didn't know who he was talking to. Cupid could do some serious damage with his arrows too. His arrows could affect gods, nymphs. Hmm. He darted up Mount Parnassus until he's far enough away. He hovered over the decomposing body of the python, a sickly, sweet smell rising from it. Ugh, yuck. From that vantage point, he could see Apollo glance left and right and then ducked behind a bush. Cupid moved for a better look, and saw a nymph, Daphne, alone in the forest. Oh, no way. Apollo was in love. Cupid understood love better than most. He also understood lust, of which a lot of the Olympians partook. This was the former, not the latter. The son of Leto was in love. Like I said, Cupid understood love better than most, and he saw that Daphne... Daphne could be it for Apollo. The Olympian might settle down with a nymph, and the hunter might catch the most elusive quarry of all. Happiness. Only if things went right here. Oh no, I'm so bad at this, I might make a mistake, Cupid said, as he felt through his quiver. Finding not his usual, sharpened, pinkish love arrows, but a different type. He drew out a blunt, heavy, lead arrow and knocked it, and his appropriately sized bow for his body size, thank you very much. Oh, I'm such a terrible shot. Apollo has nothing to worry about. I won't actually, whoops, Cupid said, as he let the leaden arrow fly, and it sunk right into the heart of Daphne, as she strolled through the forest. Instantly, Cupid let another arrow fly, at the one who watched her, but this one wasn't leaden. This was a normal arrow, a love arrow, and it, too, hit its mark, the heart of Apollo. Both the stalker and the stalked felt the effect of the arrows immediately. For Apollo, it heightened what was already there for Daphne. He was inflamed now not only with love, but with lust. For the nymph, Daphne, it didn't take anything away. Not immediately. In fact, if Apollo hadn't been hit, 
she might have never felt the effects toward him. But as he emerged from the trees, eyes wide and chest heaving, Daphne screamed. Cupid's arrow was effective. She was, and would always be, filled with revulsion for the man she saw after being shot with the lead arrow. She took off in a run, and Apollo sped after her. Twenty minutes later, the pair was still running. Apollo was panting behind Daphne. Oh, come on, baby. He wasn't some vicious lion that was going to attack her. He was a male Olympian, and she was a woman he was attracted to. It didn't get safer than that. Daphne, partially because of the leaden arrow that had pierced her heart, and partially because she was a nymph who knew of the gods and their activities, kept running. Apollo pulled the whole, do you know who I am? He said he wasn't some uncouth shepherd or wild mountain dweller. Then he listed his resume, which included being a son of Zeus, being able to reveal the past, present, and future, being Lord of the Lyre after he won a contest against a guy with a flute whom Apollo flayed when he lost. And oh yeah, he was the master of deadly arrows, but wait for it, bringing it back around, no arrow was deadlier than the one that just pierced his heart, the arrow of love for Daphne. And you know what? No herb could cure the effects of this one. Only her love. So would she do it? Would she cure the disease of her love? Apollo was an Olympian and probably never had his poetry workshopped before, so he wasn't aware of how cheesy and kind of contradictory that little mixed metaphor actually was. He also didn't realize that, slowing down to spew all of his accomplishments, trying to impress a woman who wanted nothing to do with him, said woman took off. When Apollo finally stopped congratulating himself on his pedigree and self-proclaimed awesome pickup line, Daphne was barely visible. Apollo rolled his eyes and picked up the pace. For all of Apollo's words about how he was not an animal looking to attack her, Ovid, the writer, uses kind of a lot of hungry animal imagery to describe Apollo's chase of Daphne. She is described as a hare, and he is a greyhound, snapping at her heels both of them racing forward, Apollo propelled by hope and Daphne by fear. Such a beautiful love story. Still, Apollo was catching up and Daphne looked back. She wasn't going to make it. He was Apollo and she was a nymph. Even if she eluded him today, he would keep coming for her. There would be no escape. Then, over her panting, she heard the sound of a bubbling, rushing river. Her dad. Daphne was a nymph, and her father was a river, Peneus. Now, Daphne and Peneus had a strained relationship. Ovid said that he would straight up remark, you owe me a grandson, daughter, and ask incessantly whenever she was around. So she wasn't around. She roved the nearby forest with a group of fellow nymphs, vowing never to marry. Now, though, she needed her father. She cried out to the river, if rivers have power over nature, she begged her father for help, that he change her, that he mar her beauty. She saw the waters take notice, her father take notice. She smiled. He had heard her. She was saved. Then her feet sunk into the ground. Fear flooded her body. Oh no, her father had seen Apollo chasing her with a mad, lust-filled gaze. 
This was her father's chance at not just a grandson, but one from an Olympian. She slowed to a stop, unable to lift her feet, which had sunk into her ankles down into the ground. Apollo narrowly dodged her, running past, slowing and then turning, panting through a grin. Daphne's shoulders slumped. It was over. Apollo had her. Then, the Olympian's salivating look of victory dropped from his face, replaced by confusion. He stepped back. What, what was happening to her? Daphne looked down and saw that her skin, her skin was becoming craggy, hard, and marked. Her fingers were becoming twigs, her arms branches. Leaves were sprouting from her. She was being transformed into a tree. She directed a victorious sneer at the Olympian who had chased her. She was now forever beyond his reach. Daphne looked to the river, and her final glance, before her face was frozen forever, was one of gratitude for her father, who, despite all of their differences, had, in the end, valued her over his desire for a grandson, transforming her into a tree to protect her from an assault from the gods. Apollo stood there, shocked and bewildered. But only for a moment. You see, he was still under the influence of Cupid's arrow. He rushed to the bark, held it, and things got weird. He started making out with Daphne's frozen, barky face. We'll see the Olympian's reaction to Apollo making out with the tree, but that, once again, will be right after this. Ugh, Zeus said from Olympus. Oh my gosh, what is going on this week with guys making out with inanimate objects? First that creep Pygmalion, and now my own son. Uh, I know this. Zeus paused. Apollo, Cupid chimed in. The baby was reclining, watching his work with the boss. Apollo, yeah, thanks, Zeus said. Yeah, that, mm, that guy was just going for it. Yikes. I'm telling you, these things are strong, Cupid said. Zeus looked him over. Yeah, never use those on me or I will thunderbolt you into oblivion. Cupid nodded, duly noted. Just then, Apollo appeared back on Olympus. He was wearing a garland. Hey, uh, what you wearing, son? Apollo looked up to the branches he had just torn off of Daphne, twined in his hair. Nothing, just, you know, present. Present from his girlfriend. Oh, Cupid asked. Someone new? Apollo said she, she lived far away. Cupid wouldn't know her. Oh, really? The baby archer replied. You, you meet her on the dating app, Timber? Hmm? Write her some sappy love poems? Sorry, sorry. Let me know if I'm barking up the wrong tree. Cupid, stop, Zeus boomed. Cupid froze under the withering gaze of the king of the gods. Zeus continued. Seriously, leave him alone. He can't help who he pines for. Both Zeus and Cupid broke out in laughter. Apollo's face twisted in rage. 
She's not a pine, Dad. She's a laurel tree, and we're in love. Apollo shouted through tears, running from Olympus. This is a weird day, Zeus said, taking a big drink of the nectar of ambrosia and looking back down to Earth with Cupid. Hey, why, why were those kids staring at a wall? Thisbe, are, are you talking to that plant? Thisbe's dad asked her. The young woman shook her head. Nope, nope, just hanging out by this wall in the middle of the day, in this typically mild Babylonian, modern-day Iraqi son. The father nodded. Cool. Hey, did she know who he hated? Thisbe took a deep breath and exhaled. Their neighbor? The people who lived on the other side of this wall? The father nodded. Yeah, how'd she know? Thisbe said it was because he asked her that same question every day of her life. It was the only thing he talked about. It like a defining character trait of his. Dad nodded, and she always got it right. All right, have a fun time milling unsuspiciously by this wall on the edge of our property. Before he was out of earshot, Thisbe heard again from her father talking to a servant. Hey, you know who I hate? Was that him? Thisbe heard from the plant. She brushed a branch aside, revealing a hole in the wall. Paramus, it was him, she said, to the young man on the other side. The young man with whom she was in love, but had never seen. She said she almost got caught. On the other side, she could hear Paramus curse the wall for separating them, but Thisbe stopped him. The wall had brought them together. The wall was the reason they found each other, and tonight, they would leave it forever. They decided to go over the plan one more time. Tonight, they would both sneak past their respective household guards and stick to the shadows as they slipped out into the wilderness. Once they were out of the city, they should meet at the tomb of Ninus. There, a mulberry tree hung over a fountain. They would meet there. From there, they would leave, and they would begin their new life together. Thisbe said that she was worried, but this was worth it. Paramus laughed. Why was she worried? Were two lovers from families who hate each other meeting in secret to run away together? What could possibly go wrong? It was a long day for Pyramus and Thisbe, but an equally long day on Olympus, where... After Athena, Aphrodite, Dionysus, Hera, and others had walked in on Zeus and Cupid watching the story of Paramus and Thisbe, we're all now awaiting the season finale to see how it all went. Zeus called up the image at just the right time to see Thisbe, alone, on a darkened plain. A collective gasp from the Olympians went up as the popcorn flew. There was a lion prowling around the fountain. Thisbe ran from the fountain. Her mantle, her cloak, getting caught in the nearby mulberry bush, but she made it just before the lion spotted her. She took off into the wilderness. The lion might be a big cat with the blood of a recent kill on its mouth, but it's still a cat. It saw the cloak fluttering in the wind, batted at it a few times, playing around, and then pounced, tearing it down from the branches and bringing it down to the dirt. Thoroughly trampled, the cloak wasn't moving anymore, i.e. not fun, so the lion looked around, took a drink from the fountain, 
and made his way off into the night. Just then, Paramus ran up to the fountain. He told Thisbe sorry he was late. He, and he looked down at the cloak, the cloak that she said she would be wearing. It was scratched, covered in blood, and itself was the trailhead to a series of lion footprints going off into the dark. There was one horrible, inescapable conclusion. Pyramus broke down, weeping. This was his idea to come out here. He loved her. Now she was dead because of him. He had waited to avoid a guard. If he had been there, if he had been braver, he could have warned her off or taken her place. He dropped to his knees, crying out for all the lions and all the lairs under this cliff to devour his flesh in their merciless jaws. Ah! Dionysus wrinkled his nose. A little melodramatic. He heard the sniffling of the various Olympians behind him. Really? That was, that was good? That got them? There was a collective gasp as Dionysus looked back to Paramus, who was holding his dagger. He took Thisbe's cape into his arms and kissed it. He took a deep breath. Now be soaked in the blood of Pyramus, too, he said, and plunged the dagger into his side. Ovid says, quote, that as Pyramus laid back, he pulled out the dagger, and blood gushed out of him like water out of a broken pipe, so high that it hit him not only like the most morbid sprinkler ever, but soaked the berries of the mulberry bush above. A few minutes later, Thisbe returned. She was scared, of course, but she couldn't let Pyramus arrive and face the lion by himself. It said that she noticed not the body of her lover underneath the tree, but the red berries in the night, thinking that she was in the wrong place before looking down and making out the shape of Pyramus. It didn't take long to figure out what had happened, that Pyramus had seen the cloak, assumed the worst, and he had taken his own life in his sorrow. Like Pyramus, she felt responsible for this. Now, with the body of her beloved stretched out in the soaked dirt, Thisbe, too, felt that she had no reason to go on. Her hands grasped the cold steel of the weapon at Pyramus's side. She looked up to the heavens with two prayers, that the fruit of the mulberry tree would forever be dark in remembrance of Pyramus and Thisbe, and that their ashes would be stored in the same urn so they could be together forever. With a singular plunge, her weeping ceased its echoing across the plain. Hey jerk, your kid is dead, Zeus said in an appearance to Thisbe's father in a dream. She's out at the fountain by Ninus's grave. This is all your fault, by the way. They were in love, and it was beautiful and pure, and you chased them away. Zeus, Zeus, come on. Keep it together, Hermes said, appearing next to Zeus before the frankly confused father. They had another one of these to do. Zeus sneered and pointed at the dad. If he hadn't sworn off thunderbolting people so much, he would thunderbolt Thisbe's dad so hard. Better learn from this, or else he would wake up on fire. You have no idea how lucky you are. With that, Zeus and Hermes vanished, then reappeared, Zeus's face still contorted in rage. Also bury them in the same urn. He shook his head at Thisbe's dad. So lucky. The dads did learn from it. They met at the bodies, 
the Bisbees holding Paramuses. Whatever reason they hated each other for seemed petty now. They both had gone through one of the most difficult things imaginable. Both blamed themselves, but both had someone else that was going through the same thing. It wasn't immediate, but over the next several weeks, the men talked as both went to visit the grave of their child. Soon, they were friends, and they tore down the wall between their houses, and in place of the crack, they planted a mulberry tree. It's fruit now bright red, in remembrance of the love that had touched the hearts of the gods. So yeah, two Greek and Roman love stories, and one of them is actually a love story. Both of these came from Ovid's Metamorphoses, from a Roman writer. I posted a link to a free public domain version, as well as a pretty solid translation in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, for less than the price of a tub of pickle cotton candy, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that are less than 140 calories, and also have the added benefit of not being pickle cotton candy and making you feel really gross. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Bakru from Suriname in South America. Now, if you're in the market for a mythological creature, know that you can go to the market and find the Bakru available for a two-for-one deal. They are fairy familiars, so they are creatures that supposedly help out with various tasks and whatnot. They have large heads, and they take the form of human children that are half made out of wood. So like if Pinocchio just stopped halfway. You can pick them up at the market, but know that you are not buying a person. That is very illegal. You're buying their services. The pair of Bakru will do any sort of magical job you need for a price. They work with the local merchants to sell their services during the day. Those services, well, are just kind of the worst. You see, the Bakru, like normal human children whose form they take, are pretty unruly. For a fee of bananas and milk, that's what you pay them, you can hire the Bakru to do such jobs as starting fires, throwing rocks at people, and turning invisible and tormenting people. You know how the Joker in The Dark Knight says if you're good at something, never do it for free? Well, the Bakru will absolutely work for free. And in their off time, they start fires, throw rocks, and turn invisible to torment people. Even if you do hire them, you might find yourself to be the target. If the person you hired them to torment is dead or protected by a stronger magic, congrats. You just gave them all that milk and bananas to come after you because they have to torment someone. I think the lesson here is one that should probably go without saying. Don't hire children to torture people for you. It can only end badly. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>